could be doing card tricks up here and you wouldn't notice at all. You're all looking at the kid. Never follow a kid's act. That's a, that's what it is. All right, but uh, deeply appreciative of that. We are moving into um, Ephesians 6 and the armor of God thing, which is why I'm asking you to turn to 1 Peter. <laughs> Actually, what's happening is uh, Randy's away at a uh, conference, and uh, I have been away for a little while in a galaxy far, <laughs> far away. And so uh, uh, because of that, Keith uh, Corrick will be preaching for us. Keith was the uh, pastor at Hughesville Baptist Church for many years, and most recently uh, has been our director of missions at the Potomac Baptist Association. So we welcome him to the pulpit, and uh, he will be preaching from 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, verses 13 through 16, um, and talking about the difference that God makes in our lives. Uh, if you look at those verses, you'll, you'll see that in verse 16, you really have the aiming point uh, where we're headed in all this. It says, you shall be holy because I am holy. Now, we just take that for granted. It, it's a quote from the Old Testament. Moses, as he was delivering the law, delivering the covenant uh, to the people, uh, was inspired by the Holy Spirit to, to use this uh, this concept as the very foundation of why people are different because they belong to God's covenant, because they are uh, the people of God. And the, the reason basically comes down to this. You are to be holy because God is holy. Now you might say, well, th sure, that, that just makes sense. Everybody's supposed to live a godly life. No, it doesn't make sense. That's not the way people thought some 3,000 years ago. As the children of Israel were in Egypt, uh, Egyptian religion was not about being good because God is good. It wasn't even about being good because God wants you to be good. Egyptian religion was all about being good so that the gods will leave you alone. You see, the gods were cranky. You never knew when they would get upset with you and, and, and mad at you. They didn't even have to warn you. They didn't have to tell you why they were mad at you. It's just one day you woke up and you were sick. One day you woke up and the crops had failed. Things just didn't go well in your life. Your, your family had, had disaster. You, you experienced grief and sorrow and loss. And you're trying to figure, why has this happened? And all you knew was that somewhere there was a God who was ticked off at you. And so you went to the priest, you went to the diviner, you went to the sorcerer. And you asked them to do whatever it is they do. They might take a sheep and open it up and look at the entrails. Say, ah, oh, look at that, the liver's a little bit enlarged. What does that mean? Well, let's go to the book over here. Let's see. Oh, enlarged liver means you've, um, uh, let's see, you've upset the god Thoth, and therefore you must sacrifice and read this incantation. But there was no idea of having a personal relationship with the gods of Egypt. That, by the way, is true of the religions of, ancient, of the ancient Near East. It's true of human religion, by and large. Any religion that talks about a personal relationship with God got it from the, the Jewish Christian tradition. And I include Islam. It's, you know, that's a religion of borrowing. And so when Moses wrote this, you be holy because I am holy, it was a radical idea. We're not being good so that the gods will leave us alone. We're not being good so that the gods won't just get up on the wrong side of the mountain and decide that they, you know, they just got to hurt somebody. But we will live holy lives. Why? To reflect the very nature and the character of God. 
We're living holy lives, not in order to get something, but simply to reflect who God is. Folks, there's about a 30 to 35-minute sermon brewing right now in my head, but I'm going to resist that and, and give it over to Keith so that he has some time left over. But I just want you to realize how radical a statement that is. You be holy. Why? Because God is holy. Not you be holy so that he doesn't, you know, get after you or make you sick or, or cause problems in your life. Not you be holy because that, that way God will, just won't notice how bad you are. It is you be holy as a way to reflect the holiness of God in your life. All right? So that's, that's the aiming point. Let's go to um, verse 13, 1 Peter chapter 1. And therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded... Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Let's bow together. And gracious Father, I pray that you would bring us to a point of focus. Father, that we would leave aside the clamor of the world and enter into a quiet moment before you, singing your praises and voicing our thanksgiving, testifying to the truth of the gospel. But Father, in a moment of quietness before you, to just acknowledge who you are and that we stand before you solely because of the righteousness of Christ. Father, in these moments that we have together, the moments that we worship, the moments that we spend in the Word, we pray your Holy Spirit would take possession of our thoughts and our motives, take possession of our hearts, take possession of our arms and legs, so that all that we have would be brought into full and complete surrender to the doing of your will. Thank you, Father, for loving us the way you do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. children singing about the full armor of God and so much has been shared with us in song through message about the battle we are in. The Apostle Paul, he says, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Find your resources for the battle. It's not going to be easy. It's not going to be easy because we have a devil. He says, put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles, the methods of the devil. Well, Peter has another way of coming at it. He talks about the Christian life following Jesus. Living in this world is not going to be easy for his readers. He calls them in the beginning of his letter exiles. They're outsiders. If you'll turn with me back to that passage in 1 Peter chapter 1, you'll see there in the beginning he says they are exiles. Another translation says they are aliens. That's a different way of describing yourself as a Christian. You're an alien. You don't fit into this world's values, its way of thinking, its philosophies. They're being marginalized. They're going through hard times. Fiery trials are ahead of them. 
they're probably facing persecution in the future. It's a battle. In fact, Peter also refers to the devil himself. Later on in the book, he says, to be sober-minded, the devil is roaming around, seeking to devour us, to tear us apart. And so he speaks of the Christian battle there. And so how are these Christians, according to the Apostle Peter, to live in a world that's hostile or opposed to the thoughts of God? How are they? To, well, he doesn't say, I want you to vacate the premises. What I want you to do is go off and create your little subculture and live in your own little community and just escape from the world. I've read about a preacher once, true story, way back in the day I read, actually listened to him tell this story. He was contacted, he lived in Texas and he was contacted by a Christian developer who wanted to create a Christian subdivision, a community where only Christians live. He said he couldn't think of anything more reprehensible than that. As if to say to the rest of the world, we're just going to live in our own little community and let the rest of you go to hell. So Peter doesn't say that. He wants us to be on mission. He's, he wants us not to vacate the world. But neither does he say, I want you to accommodate the world. I don't, he doesn't say, well, don't get so uptight. Don't get so serious about this Christian living. Uh, I, I just blend in. Become part of the world's values. Uh, don't get so worked up about it. He wants us to take our Christian living seriously. And I believe here's what Peter wants to say to us. I want you not to vacate the premises. I don't want you to blend in. But I want you, because you've been called of God, I want you to be distinctively different in this world. Qualitatively different. You have a uniqueness because our great God is unique. There is no other God like him. He's not like those gods that Pastor Wayne was referring to of the Egyptians. There is none beside him. He is holy. He is separate. He is morally pure, of course. The word holiness speaks of his purity and he is without sin and separate from sin. But he is... He is uh, the word holy refers to being set apart. He's different than us. And one theologian said he's a cut above us and it's a big cut. But Peter says, be different like God, distinctively different. So he's going to, I believe, give us some instructions on how to go about it, how to be dis different in this world. And so I want to examine three instructions this morning with you on how to be distinctively different, to live out our calling as followers of Jesus. Peter, I think, would say, I'll put it this way, live in response to your grace realities, your grace privileges, your gospel benefits. Live in response to the grace that God has shown you through Jesus Christ. What God has done for you in Christ and what God says is true of you in Christ. We call these, these things indicatives. 
In other words, an indicative is something that God has, he states it, he has done it for you in Christ, in his saving grace, and it is true of you by his grace. Now, in uh, chapter 1, before we get to uh, verse 13, we see this hinge word in verse 13. It's therefore. And what it does is it points us backwards to think about, because in verses uh, 3 and following down to verse 12, uh, the commentators say this is all one Greek long sentence in the Greek. It doesn't appear that way in your English Bibles. But, and there's no, no commands at all. All there are are these glorious affirmations of God's saving grace through verses 3 and following all the way down, actually from verse 1 down. And then he says, therefore, now I was, uh, I'm going to look back with gratitude for the rest of my life for the wonderful friend your pastor has been to me. I cherish him and love him so much and count it a privilege in my life, one of the greatest privileges, to be his friend. And one of the things I have enjoyed about Pastor Wayne so much is sitting down and just discussing God, talking about God. And I love talking about preaching with Pastor Wayne because I'm still trying to learn how to do this thing. You know, it's, it's like a, a lifelong quest. Lord, help me. And so every time just about we would get together for lunch, uh, I would say to Pastor, we ask him a question. What are you preaching on these days? Because I'm a director of missions. I'm not like in the pulpit every Sunday like he would be. What are you preaching on these days? And he would always tell me he's preaching through a book of the Bible. Well, once I said, what are you preaching on? He said, well, you know, I've been at Waldorf for a long time. I've preached through many books, but I think I'm going to preach through Romans, and I'm going to, instead of starting at the beginning, I'm going to start at chapter 12 and just preach those exhortations, you know, uh, that Christian living, those, those commands from chapter 12 on. I'm going to do, just do that slowly and work from chapter 12 to 16. Because there it says... Uh, I beseech you, therefore, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice. There's a therefore right there in chapter 12, just like here in Peter's letter. So the next time, probably several weeks later, maybe six, eight weeks, I don't know, we got together for lunch. I said, how's it going in your preaching through Romans? He smiled and he said, you know... I had to go back to chapter 1. <laughs> and I'm, I'm still there. And every time we get, I'm in chapter 3. Next time, I'm in chapter 5. Why is that? Because the therefore is like a springboard throwing you back, helping you to see all of the indicatives, the things that are true because of the work of the gospel of Jesus Christ the affirmations that God makes, the identity. You know, uh, Paul and Peter, they have a, a wonderful way of discipling new followers of Jesus Christ. I think we do new followers of Christ, new converts, a disservice sometimes. When they come to Christ, what do we do? What's our method? Well, let's get them busy. Let's 
give them this to do and that to do and this to do, and we never think what we need to help them understand the gospel, the implications of the grace of God in the gospel, what God says he's done for them, and what God says is true of them in their gospel identity now. And I think that would be a lot better method because that's the method that Paul used. That's the method that Peter uses. He tells us here all of these wonderful, saving, indicatives, affirmations of God's glorious grace. Before there's the doing of the Christian life, there's a therefore to help you. There's grace comes first. And you must remember that if we get that backwards, you see we're about to go into some commands. Peter's going to command us to do some things. And if we get the command before uh, the indicatives or what God has said he's done for us or is true of us, if we get that backwards, we're probably going to end up despairing, getting frustrated, or end up into a works righteousness. There are three words that help me to always remember. Guilt, grace, gratitude. I am a guilty sinner before God in his holiness. But God in his grace sent his son to live a life I could never live, a life of righteousness, to offer that life up on the cross, to be a substitute for Keith, to bear my judgment and my sin upon himself and his own body, to pay for all of my sin, all of my condemnation, all of my guilt. He paid it all. And then he rose from the grave the third day, which proves that what he did on the cross is true and real. And if I believe in that, it's true for me. And I'm okay before God. I'm righteous before God. Not because I'm intrinsically righteous, but because he did that for me. Helping us understand that is a motivation for Christian living. Now Peter says things like, he says, you are not only an alien in this world, but, but you're chosen. You see, these are affirmations. You're chosen by his grace. He talks about the work of the, the triune God, our, our, our majestic triune God in verse 2. How the Father is working to save us, the Son and the Holy Spirit. He speaks about his grace in causing us in verse 3 to be born again into a living hope. Remember that word hope. We have an inheritance in verse 4 that is imperishable, kept for us in heaven. What's that like? That's going to be something. Verse 5, we are guarded in, by faith. We are protected. God keeps us through our trials. He even develops our faith. He tests it through our trials. He develops it and proves it to be genuine. We are filled with love and joy. Verse 8. Verse 10. The prophets predicted this great salvation that we enjoy today. And we worship God for. And the angels seem to stoop down and peer into it with amazement. All of these affirmations and more are true of you, Christian. And you remember that. And live in that. And let that sink in every day of your life. Remind yourself of it. And live in those grace realities, those grace privileges. That's how you start being different. 
That's how you start living out this call that Peter is calling us to. Now, he gives us another instruction here. Not only are we to live in our grace privileges, but he says to set your hope fully on the grace to come. Now, he's been helping us to think back to what Christ has done for us and is true already. Now he's helping us to put on another pair of glasses. I just got my new glasses, Wayne. You're looking a whole lot better than you used to. And uh, I'll tell you, they're so clear. And uh, I'm just kidding. He's a good friend. I can kid with him like that. He'll have one right back for me later. And, but it's like Peter has us put these lenses on. He wants us to look back. But he wants us to have that lens where we're looking forward. And he says, fix your hope. Now, now the word hope here doesn't mean wishful thinking. You know, it's not like the biblical word in the New Testament, David Dockery says, is confident expectation. Set your confident expectation. It's not wishful thinking like, well, I I wish the Redskins would win today. Good luck with that. Well, we're not to think about going to heaven and experiencing the glory of eternity like that. You know, like, I hope it happens. You know, I, I, I wish I would go to heaven when I die. No, it's confident expectation. And Peter says, fix your confident expectation on the revelation of Jesus Christ when he splits the sky and comes in his glory for you. And on that day, You think grace is good now? We are going to experience climactic grace. There's a storehouse of blessings awaiting you. Now that helps people like Peter's readers who are suffering, who have, as the choir was singing, trials on every hand. And they did. That encourages us. I think, you know, I don't do that enough. I don't fix my hope enough on that future grace to come. And so Peter says there are a couple of ways things we need to keep in mind to be able to do this, to be able to reflect back on those indicatives, those things that are true of us by the saving grace of Christ and also the future grace of Jesus to come in his second coming. He says you have to engage your mind. You have to be mentally alert. Notice what he says in verse 13. Preparing your minds for action. The King James Version just uh, put it this way. Gird up the loins of your mind, I think it said. Which is kind of strange for us to say because uh, they, in, that, in th- this day, in the biblical day, ancient times, they wore these long flowing robes. The only time I maybe ever wore a robe I can think of Uh, maybe for a couple of weddings and one time I preached a sermon in a robe while I was going to seminary in New Orleans and the preacher pastored this church and he wore a robe and he asked me to fill in he was taller than I am and so the robe was longer than it should have been for me and so I went up to step up into this chancel that was really a cool experience I was like way up in the air and when I went up to step into that thing my foot hit 
the bottom of the rope and pulled it down. It was an embarrassing experience. I should have girded up the loins, <laughs> taken the ro free-flowing rope, picked it up, tucked it in. Well, that wouldn't have looked right either. And what I could have hid behind the pulpit. The idea is get your mind ready for action. You're in a spiritual battle. You're in difficulty. But to, to think about the future coming of Christ and the grace that will come to us then, you have to engage your mind to live as a Christian. Would you agree with me we live in a world that has basically a culture that has a disengaged mind? It's like the minds, uh, uh, I don't know where we're getting what we're getting on television anymore, but it's like the mind has been flipped into neutral. And just anything that flows, flows. You can't live that way and be holy, as Peter is calling us to live, with a disengaged mind, an unprepared mind, a lazy mind, a mind that's sleeping. There is, in a great sense, I think, been a crisis in the church for years where we, even in the church, have become anti-mind. It's like we're so fixed on feelings and subjective experiences. We're afraid to think. It's what I appreciate about your pastor so much. He's a great thinker, but he's got a great heart for God. But engage your mind. And then he says, be sober, sober in spirit. Uh, be on your tiptoes spiritually. As I, he uses that be sober over in latter, the latter chapters when he talks about the devil seeking, he's roaming around seeking to devour us and Peter is saying be sober the devil's roaming around, he says be sober when you pray in chapter 4 he's not talking about uh, being intoxicated with liquids and spirits and things like that although that would disengage our minds but there, you know, there are other things that can intoxicate, influences that can intoxicate your mind. Has your mind ever been influenced so much that you were just drunk with worry in your thinking? Or fear? Or ill feelings toward another person? We have to be careful. We have to use our minds to follow Christ, to live out this Christian calling. And so he says here, Set your hope fully on that day when Christ will come. Live in those grace realities. Set your hope on the grace to come when Jesus comes again. And then he says this, I believe thirdly, Peter would instruct us in living out this distinctive calling, this distinctive lifestyle. Imitate your God in your behavior. Notice what he says in verse 15. Now, first of all, he actually gives us a negative. There's a negative to that. He says, don't go back to your former ways, your former passions, your ways of ignorance. Um, I became a Christian in 1970. I'm now living in my hometown where I grew up. I moved away from there in 69, and I come from a non-churched background up to that point. Uh, purely no kind of Christian thought or practice basically pagan thinking and uh, now that I live there I ride through my town I'll go there today I'll go home I walk around town 
and often the nostalgia gets you, especially when you're getting older. And you start thinking and you look at places and I have a good memory. And I, I look at places and I go, man, I remember what I did back in the day. And I think that was really dumb. That was ignorant. I didn't know the disservice, the dishonor I was doing to God. And that's the way people are. And by the way, maybe we should cut people some slack. How can we expect them to live up to what we believe in? Because their hearts have not been born again. They're, they're, they've not been regenerated. You know, they're dead. They're ignorant. And they're dead in their trespasses and sins. But... Peter says, don't conform to that. He says, instead, what I want you to conform to is to the character of God in your conduct. Notice he uses this word in verse 15, conduct. The New American Standard says behavior, conduct. Think of that. Would you agree with me that it matters, church, what we do? It matters what we do. It matters what we don't do. But it matters what we do, but I'll take, I'll take it beyond that and say it not only matters what we do, but it matters how we do what we do. Because how we do what we do paves roads for people to perhaps come to know the great God we know. And so Peter wants us uh, to imitate God in our behavior, in our conduct. Now, how can we do that? Uh, I've been teaching on the attributes of God at Trinity Baptist where I serve as their interim pastor and uh, I've been using Wayne Grudem's book. He talks about the attributes of God. He talks about and he classifies them. It's not a perfect classification system. You have to be careful about putting God into systems. But he classifies the attributes as incommunicable and communicable. In other words, the incommunicable attributes of God are, are truths about him that he doesn't share with us. For example, example, he is, he is omnipresent. Now, I had a lot of church members that thought I should have that attribute, but I, I could not be everywhere at all times, but God is. So he doesn't share that attribute with me or you. But then there are communicable attributes of God, things about his character that he does share with us. You know what communicable means, you know, you can catch it. God wants, it's like my wife said, they're saying the flu has started. And I don't have my flu shot yet. I've got to get to the doctor and get my flu shot. You know why? And if you've got that flu today, then just wave or holler unclean. Because I don't want to catch it. It's communicable. Well, there are attributes of God that we can catch that he shares with us. Right down here in the chapter, he speaks of loving one another fervently. Is that an attribute of God? That's, that's an imitation of God's character that we can practice. And would you agree with me that this world, they live in a world that they don't see that kind of love being practiced. But we can practice it. You know, we can practice his justice. We see people being treated unfairly. We can work that they are treated justly. Or someone over here is down on their luck and completely up against the wall and we can, we can share by our conduct and treat them with mercy. Is that like our God? Compassion. And so Peter is saying, 
be distinctively different. Imitate the character. Conform to God. Now, how does that happen? It happens as we worship him, as we grow to know him better, and we walk with him, and we, it takes time. And, and let's be honest. Just let's do a little check here, an honesty check. Aren't we just a little bit comfortable, uncomfortable, I should say, in case you won't say it, I'll say, aren't we just a little bit like Isaiah when we talk about all this holiness stuff? Could you just turn this on? Um, Is that an indicator I should end? So (laughs) I think there's a, a little Isaiah in all of us. That, you know, remember Isaiah, uh, he met up with the holiness of God in the sixth chapter of Isaiah, and he says, Woe is me, I am undone. I'm done for here. In the presence of a holy God, I can't stand it. He's going to kill me. I, I, I can't even take it. I think we're a little uncomfortable with this whole idea of holiness. Is why, by the way, we need to go back to those statements that therefore and remember all the things that God said are true of us because of the blood of Jesus Christ he ransomed us from our futile ways and he has declared us righteous in his sight I'm not intrinsically holy I don't talk about this this morning because I think I'm like super holy I think one of the things that sets us off about this whole thing and makes us a little bit push back to it is we've got these perceptions about this whole idea of holiness anyway. We think of people who announce themselves as being holier than thou. You know, Jesus ran into that kind of thing on his earthly, during his earthly ministry. And, and if I'm around those kind of people, those holier than thou, they manifest that kind of attitude. I mean, I want to leave the room real quick. That's, uh, that's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about some attitude where we go around and try to act self-righteous and all that kind of stuff. Talking about being distinctively different because as we walk with God, we worship him in the beauty of his holiness. We grow to know him. We love him. We want to know more about him and experience him. And you know, gradually that process rubs off on us and we gradually become more and we conform to his character. It's kind of like a married couple. You know, my wife and I have been married, uh, I think, uh, don't tell her I said that, so I think it'll be 47 years next June. And we know one another. I mean, it's spooky. And she can look at me and just look at my face and go, what? I mean, I haven't said anything. You almost, when you've been married this long, you start to think alike. You have the same kind of desires sometimes, and you even begin, it's strange. I've known couples, I think they begin to look alike after that time. And that would be an insult to my wife, by the way. But, but that's the way it is with God. As we worship him in the beauty of holiness, we get to know him, we love him, we walk with him. We go to the therefores, we remember what he says, who we are in Christ, what Christ has done for us by saving grace. We look forward to the day when he will come for us. We fix our gaze on that. And then in the meantime, we set out 
to conform not to the old ways, but to his, his character and conform and become more and more. What we're really talking about is becoming more like Jesus. And may God help us to do that and to shine for his glory. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this text and this call to be different. We pray, Father, that you would help us once again this morning to live in gratitude, this, especially this week as we highlight Thanksgiving. We highlight the need to count our benefits. Forget not your benefits. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul and all that is within me for all that you have done for us through the saving grace of our Lord Jesus. Help us to live and to fully set our hope, our confidence that Jesus is coming again for his church, for us, and we will experience that climactic grace beyond anything we can describe. I don't have the words for it. And Father, in the meantime, keep conforming us and molding us into the image of your holy son our lord jesus christ that we might shine and bring others to you in jesus name we ask this amen